HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. I'm Dave Arnold, host of Cooking Issues. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to Japan Eats. I'm your host, Akiko Katayama, a food writer and a director of the New York Japanese Culinary Academy, which promotes a deeper understanding of Japanese cuisine in America. We are broadcasting live from a studio at Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn. This show is all about Japanese food and food culture. We see sushi at every deli and a supermarket, but what is beyond sushi? We hear umami, ramen, izakaya, and so on, but what exactly are they? Japanese food is still a bit of mystery for many people, and I would like to demystify it in this program. So my guest today is Harry Rosenbaum, who is the owner of Brooklyn Kitchen and the Meat Hook, a super cool grocery store, a kitchenware store, cooking school, and a butcher store in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. And he's also the president of JCAN, the Japanese Culinary Arts Network, which promotes Japanese artisanal products in the U.S. Hello and welcome to the show. Thanks, Akiko. Glad to be here. <laughs> so, um, luckily, I live five minutes away from Booking Kitchen, so I go there at least twice a week. But for listeners who haven't been there, uh, what is, can you describe what the Brooklyn Kitchen is? Sure. Um, the Brooklyn Kitchen, we describe it as a cooking store. We do three things. We do instruction, we do ingredients, and we do equipment. So we have a. We started as a houseware store in 2006. We sell a full line of pots, pans, knives, cooking tools, and small appliances. And then we expanded in 2009. Opened the Meat Hook, which is our in-house butcher shop, where we do whole animal butchery, make our own sausages, our own charcuterie, um, cut everything to order, and then also sell now fresh produce and grocery items as well. And then we have two classrooms where we do about 50 classes a month. Mm. So basically, if you can't cook, you don't know anything about food. But if you keep going there, you can be an expert of cooking. That's part, part of the idea. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. And uh, so the, how many products do you carry? Thousands. Mm. Um, 
I mean, it's I, I don't have a number off the top of my head, but we as, as a store in in each of the industries that we're in, we probably deal with more vendors than most. Certainly in the housewares industry, a lot of people buy from distributors who conglomerate certain brands. Uh, we have probably a higher rate of just single products from single vendors than than most places do. We have a, try to have a close relationship and seek out the most interesting stuff, which of course means it's a lot of work for us. Mm-hmm. If we're only buying one product from a vendor instead of buying 100, it's a lot more work to put together the purchase order, to order the item, to get it in, to merchandise it, to sell it. But we feel strongly that that's really the way to have the best selection we possibly can. Mm-hmm. Uh, as far as grocery items go, again, same sort of thing. We have tons of vendors. We buy from all over the country and all over the world mm-hmm. um, to try and bring the best products to our customers. Right. And I, I think you told me earlier that uh, you have eight times more items than the regular grocery store in the same size. We so, do have a lot in the same in the same footprint. I don't I don't know what the exact uh, what the exact math works out to be, right. but we do. Uh, you know, and, and we're different than a regular grocery store or a traditional American grocery store, where you know you go to buy peanut butter and you're sort of overwhelmed by choice. You have you know twenty different kinds of peanut butter. We have two, mm-hmm. and we think that they're great, and those are the ones that we support. And we try to really know all the suppliers. Uh, where we're getting our goods and be able to really understand and be transparent about the um, about the sourcing and about the supply chain. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, the goal in, in everything we sell, and it gets a lot harder when you're talking about peelers and things like that, mm-hmm. is to really be able to tell our customers where every single item in our stores right. is coming from. And that's, you know, at this point, it's going to be a lifelong goal right. for me to get there. <laughs> right. And, uh, and you have a lot of unique uh, artisanal Japanese products. And uh, such as aged soy sauce, uh, beautiful Japanese plum sauce, which I use uh, on top of anything on my pasta, <laughs> and uh, the turtle-shaped scrubbing brush, mm-hmm. something like you never see normally in this country. So why did you start carrying those items? Um, my my personal interest in Japan goes back long before the Brooklyn Kitchen. Uh, my father worked for Hitachi uh, mm-hmm. in the late 70s. And so as a kid, I was exposed to certain pieces of Japanese culture. My father has never been to Japan. I'm encouraging him now that he's retired that he should go. But I we went out for sushi when I was a kid in the in the late 70s, early 80s. And I would go to school and talk about, you know, how I was eating raw fish. And everybody said, ew, yuck, raw fish. <laughs> and, you know, now, as you said in your introduction... You know, you can buy sushi or what passes for sushi in America at probably every gas station all the way across the country. Mm-hmm. Everybody's aware of what sushi is and what it represents. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was exposed to that stuff at a young age and always found it interesting, always really liked it. Um, and so as I got older, I just sort of learned more about it um, and had the opportunity when we opened the Brooklyn Kitchen to start selling Japanese knives. Mm-hmm. Met the folks at Kikuichi knives who are rare in that they are very old. They have a 700-year history of knife making in Japan, mm-hmm. but had a, an author, have an office in the United States, which mm-hmm. most Japanese knife companies do not. Mm-hmm. So I was able to really meet them and become friendly with them, and in 2010 got to go to Japan to work with some of those knife makers, and that was a, you know, an incredibly eye-opening experience. I'd always been to Japanese grocery stores here in the States and bought things that I thought were interesting, but to get to go to Japan and really see the width and breadth of what's available there that's not being imported here, mm-hmm. that sort of really, really spawned my interest mm-hmm. in trying to find Japanese products. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's getting better. It's gotten better in the last five or ten years, the things that are available here mm-hmm. in the States, but there are things that we're now bringing in ourselves um, that we are direct importing. We have tea 
from Murakami outside Niigata mm -hmm. that we are direct importing mm -hmm. that we're the only store in the United States that sells. Mm. So, um, you know, at the introduction, I, I, you, you're the president of JCAN. Mm -hmm. So can you uh, tell us a little bit about JCAN? Yeah, JCAN uh, stands for the Japanese Culinary Arts Network, and it's a, a company that was founded by myself and the owner of Kikuichi Knives, Ikuyo Yanagasawa, and I have become friends through, through the knife industry for us from us being a customer and uh after my trip to japan in 2010 i started trying to find other things to buy in japan that led me to be identified by jetro which is the japanese external trade organization it's a government uh trade promotion group essentially mm -hmm. as someone in america who's interested in japanese products so they approached me in 2011 to go essentially on a buying junket mm -hmm. in japan and see a bunch of products a bunch of manufacturers with other buyers from America. Mm -hmm. uh, I went on that trip. Um, I, you know, I couldn't turn down a free free trip mm -hmm. to Japan. And when I came back, I was talking with Akuyo about the fact that while it was great to get a free trip to Japan, mm -hmm. they really weren't spending their money very well. And clearly they had a lot of money to spend. Mm -hmm. The group that I was with was about 18 buyers from mm -hmm. the United States and Europe. Uh, I understood from our sort of Jetro handlers that there was another group in Japan at the same time with about 30 buyers from China. Mm -hmm. And then there was yet another group of American buyers within about a dozen other people. Mm -hmm. So you're talking about they paid for flights and accommodations for including the handlers, probably 100 people or more, <laughs> to fly them to Japan, business class, mm, wow. to take them around, to put them up in hotels, to feed them, to show them products with the idea and the goal for to generate trade that we were going to buy things. Mm -hmm. All of the places they took me for five days in Japan and everything they showed me, there was not one product that I wanted to buy. Mm -hmm. And what that led me to realize is that they were clearly had money to spend, but weren't spending it in the right way mm -hmm. in order to really generate that trade. Mm -hmm. So when I returned and Akuyo and I started talking, I said, look, you know, I sell lots of products that would do well in this market, mm -hmm. both in food Mm -hmm. And in in hard goods and regular products that don't need to pass any kind of USDA um, testing right. in order to be sold here, mm -hmm. but nobody's bringing them in. Mm. Stores aren't aware of them. And some of them, like knives, knives are a really good example of something that's very easy to direct import. Mm -hmm. The shipping is very expensive from right. Japan. I mean, we, there's a huge geographic barrier there. <laughs> but knives are a high-dollar item. Right. So on a knife that we're going to retail for $500, mm -hmm. the shipping cost is not... It, you know, it's fine to add an extra $10 to that cost because mm -hmm. we can eat that in the margin right. and have it be worth it. Mm -hmm. It's very hard to bring in a $3 trinket right. if you have to pay $3 to get it here. Mm -hmm. Right. So um, other than knives, you know, after you established J-Can, have you imported something you feel very interesting, you're proud of? Can you just give us a couple examples? Sure. There's a there's a product that I actually found and bought at retail. I mean, the, you know, for me, looking for new products everywhere I go, whether it's in the United States or Europe or, or overseas in Japan, mm -hmm. shopping in other stores is one of the best ways to find new products for our store. Mm -hmm. So in 2010, when I was there, I found this really neat little bottle opener. Uh, it's a bottle opener that allows you to then reseal mm -hmm. a bottle of carbonated soda or beer or whatever mm -hmm. um, called the Sizzler. Okay, and <laughs> good it, name. <laughs> it's a good name. It has a really cool package. It's a small item. Mm -hmm. um, it has a picture, actually, of a of a Western 
woman in oh. kind of a 1970s looking Wait, yeah, picture yeah, yeah. on it. It's, I mean, the, the, the image of it is great. Hopefully right. I'm doing it justice Actually, on the Actually, I've seen the, the packaging and then it was like one time in Japan, like so retro and right. like a madman time. Right. So totally uh, copied over to the Japanese market. Yeah. And so, so it, it, it's very cool and I think resonates now with the packaging mm-hmm. with customer base <laughs> because of Mad Men and things like that. Right. And if they were to change the packaging, the product wouldn't sell as well, mm-hmm. honestly. Right. So that was a product that I bought at retail and then looked for a long time to figure out who I could buy it from. Mm. Finally found a, a partner in a small store in Japan who I said, look, can you give me a decent price if I buy a lot, if I buy a mm-hmm. gross of them at a time or so? And so now we have this relationship where I'm buying some other items from that same supplier. Mm-hmm. And they're just a retail store. They're just giving me a slight discount. Mm-hmm. But the products are interesting enough and the pricing is good enough that if I order enough of them and pay the shipping, I can bring them over. So that, you know, that product is one that we've had for a while. It's not a, you know, it's not, it's not, you know, going to pay my rent, but, right. I mean, you know, but it's a neat little product and it got mentioned in Bon Appetit. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. So it was pictured great. in Bon Appetit. And so, you know, now we've got orders from all over the country for them oh, wow. coming through our website. So, you know, people are logging on to thebrooklynkitchen.com and finding this product hmm. because it was mentioned. Right. And so for us, that's part of the, you know, it, that really supports the idea that it's worth finding all these small mm-hmm. products because right. then if it's something nobody's ever seen before, you know, we get to be the introducer of that to them. Right. So, any other products that you want to... I mean, I think that, you know, the tea that I mentioned earlier, um, it's a fantastic tea. I visited the tea farm. I mean, mm-hmm. I you know, in the store we have a picture of me standing on the tea farm. And so, mm-hmm. you know, being able to connect people in that way, mm-hmm. I think one of the interesting things that we have available to us now in the modern age, people talk a lot about local. Mm-hmm. And while I, I 100% believe in, in shopping locally, mm-hmm. tea doesn't grow local to New York. So all tea has to come from somewhere else mm-hmm. if we want to drink tea. And this was an opportunity that I had to go visit this tea farmer. Mm -hmm. Very small operation. He runs it himself. His Mm -hmm. father was a tea farmer. His grandfather was a tea farmer. Mm -hmm. And because we have access to things like jet travel and the internet, Mm -hmm. I could go there and stand next to him in his field. And I have met him and I have seen his growing practices and I have seen his roaster and I can train my Mm -hmm. staff about what that's like. And then we're able to sell that product. And to me, that's part of the work that we're doing at the Brooklyn Kitchen to to be transparent and to visit these places and promote these people mm-hmm. who are really doing this work on a very small scale. Right. And, you know, so that's it. I mean, that product, we haven't sold as many as we've sold of the Sizzler, mm-hmm. but it's a really incredible product right. that nobody in America has any mm-hmm. access to. Well, in a way, though, right now, everybody's talking of local sustainable, but I think it's globally local sustainable. It's about the lifestyle of... I agree. And, and appreciate locally, globally. <laughs> and I, well, I think, the, and I think the idea of, of it being sustainable and, and of it really being about a community, right? Mm-hmm. And, and the word community, you know, really is not necessarily just about the people who live on your block or in your neighborhood or in your zip code or in your city. Mm-hmm. It's about the people that you're connected to. Right. And so, you know, now that tea farm is part of the Brooklyn Kitchen community mm-hmm. um, in, you know, in a very real way, right. in the same way that, you know, uh, that the, we have umeboshi, Mm-hmm. Uh, salted plums mm-hmm. that actually come from uh, from Washington mm-hmm. State, mm-hmm. being made by a couple there who are picklers, mm-hmm. who bought all of the plums mm-hmm. to make them from a specific orchard, mm-hmm. and they're making a Japanese product, but mm-hmm. they're making it in this country, mm-hmm. and you know we're connected to them. They're part of that same community, right. and they're across the country. Right. So actually, th- I tasted that one, and then that was the funsiest. Uh, umeboshi yeah. in my whole life. Yeah. I have to say, this is the tastiest. Yeah. It's like a, you know, the treat, like a caviar. Yeah, absolutely. Pretty expensive. They're, yeah, it's, it's expensive, so but they're it. delicious. Yeah. Right. And uh, do you have any specific criteria for you to pick any products from Japan? 
or um, any anything. Sure, I, you know we we talk a lot about um, in our sort of sourcing goals of, of what we want what we want in our products, and then there's a certain part of it that um, we always get to a point in discussing it where it's very hard to describe what it is about a product mm -hmm. in some cases that makes it great. Mm -hmm. There's a certain feeling about the product, but I think it, it comes down to, in a lot of cases, quality of manufacturing. Mm -hmm. um, it, in, a, in a housewares product, it comes down to quality of manufacturing. You know, We don't like to support products that are what uh, Taylor, my wife and business partner, has termed landfill fodder. Mm -hmm. um, you know, We don't want to sell people things that are just going to break in two weeks or they're going to lose one piece and it's going to become useful mm -hmm. or useless and they're going to have to throw it away. Right. Um, so quality is very important. Usefulness mm -hmm. is very important to us. And then look and feel. Mm -hmm. um, you know, There's a lot to do with look and feel. Mm -hmm. We uh, A good example of a Japanese product that we love that we sell a lot of is an ice cube tray. Um, there's an ice cube tray that makes three ice spheres mm -hmm. that we get from a, an importer in New York. Mm -hmm. um, New York Mutual Trading imports them. Mm -hmm. And I discovered that they were selling them, and I said, we're going to sell these, and we sell lots of them. Right. Um, it's a good price point. It's a neat thing. Mm -hmm. Everybody in cocktails is into these right. giant ice cubes. Mm -hmm. But the packaging is all in Japanese. Mm -hmm. There's no English on it at all <laughs> because it doesn't need it. A lot of the food products that you see coming in from Japan have mm -hmm. an, an applied over label, which explains it in English. Mm -hmm. This product didn't have that because it doesn't have to, mm -hmm. and it was great because it was very obvious what it was, right. but it's really cool. Mm -hmm. And it's all in Japanese, and it's a neat product, and people like buying it because it feels special to them, and it's a great gift. Right. The supplier came to me, and they said the next batch that they were getting from Japan, they changed the packaging, and they translated it all into English. Mm. And I said, well, I'm not going to buy them then. Right. <laughs> That's really true. I said, you know, and they said, well, okay, well, what about just clear packaging? I said, clear packaging is fine, but to be honest, one of the things that helps sell this product mm -hmm. is not only that it's useful and it's a good price point and it's a nice product, mm -hmm. but that the packaging is all in Japanese. Right. Yeah, I heard uh, the sake, you know, the sake labels, which yep. is written in Japanese, sells more yep, than the translated one. Yeah. yeah, which is really strange because, to me, because... I think that you would see something totally different if mm -hmm. you had if you had beer, for instance. If you had beer that was completely in Japanese and mm -hmm. people didn't know what type it was mm -hmm. and had no description of what it was going to mm -hmm. taste like, they, I don't think it would sell as well. And so it's sort of this it's this weird thing where I, you know people don't people don't drink sake in the same way, I guess, as they mm -hmm. drink beer, but right. in this country, yeah. All right, so that's great. And now we will take a quick break, and uh, when we come back, we are going to talk about more about Japanese knives. Please stay with us. Welcome back. Uh, you're listening to Japan Eats, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. My guest today is Harry Rosenblum, the owner of Brooklyn Kitchen and Meat Hook, and the president of JCAN, the Japanese Culinary Arts Network. So we've been talking about uh, uh, the products that Harry carries at Brooklyn Kitchen, and uh, especially the Japanese knives. So how many um, uh, Japanese knives, how many types of Japanese knives do you carry at your store? 
rough estimate off the top of my head, we probably carry a dozen varieties across different, you know, and then there are, within that, there are different sizes, mm-hmm. um, and then there are different manufacturers. Wow. Um, and some of those we, we direct import um, from Japan. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mentioned and spoke earlier about Kikuichi. They uh, originated in Nara in mm-hmm. Japan, mm-hmm. Um, and they have a family history that traces back knife making to sword making about mm-hmm. 700 years ago. Okay. So Nara is uh, the western part of Japan near Kyoto and Osaka. Yeah. Right. Um, and they're their history, like many, um, many of the sort of older, um, more historied knife makers in Japan, um, is that they start out as sword makers. And then in the... Like samurai sword makers. Exactly, samurai sword makers. And then in the 1860s, the emperor of Japan outlawed samurais. And so in a very, you know, I think we can understand it uh, as New Yorkers, in a very market-driven uh, mm-hmm. move, right. they no longer had a market to sell their swords. Mm-hmm. So they started making cutlery and started right. making knives. And so that history of making knives mm-hmm. uh, and, and kitchen knives goes back goes back to that. Right. Um, I mean, they were making knives as well, but, but swords were really their big business mm-hmm. um, previous to that. Um, so the division uh, is called the Sakai in Osaka. Sakai Sakai City is is a part, Osaka yeah, is a part of part of Osaka, um, and that's where the sort of more traditional. That's the center at the moment, um, I would say, of a lot of the traditional handmade, hand forged mm-hmm. um, Japanese knife making that's mm-hmm. going on in Japan right now. The two major knife making areas in Japan. Um, that we deal with are in Sakai City and then in Seki. And Seki is sort of on the northern north side of the island mm-hmm. um, of Honshu on the main island. And it's more known for its um, factory-produced mm-hmm. knives than Sakai. Uh, but there is there is some sort of overlap uh, in each of those mm-hmm. in each of those places. Yeah, I read an article about you know how much of uh, the Sakai knives used among professional chefs. It's ninety percent of the the whole country, mm. so it's still very going strong. It is, yeah, it is. It is going strong, um, and it, it, it's interesting coming from an American standpoint to go there and visit. Mm-hmm. Um, I've now been to to visit the knife makers we work with in Sakai three times, mm-hmm. and it's very different than you imagine as an American. Mm-hmm the knife-making production because it's not in a factory. Mm-hmm. You know, I think in America, when we think of things being manufactured in the modern age, ever since Henry Ford, people mm-hmm. think of an assembly line mm-hmm. where you're in a factory and you start out with raw material and it gets made into something and it sort of pops out the end as a finished product. Mm-hmm. The way that the, the knives are manufactured in Sakai is not like that at all. Mm-hmm. You have different people who are really specialized artisans who do one piece of the process mm-hmm. and then the knife itself and the pieces of the knife sort of move around mm-hmm. between these between these people right. who are working on their knives. Mm-hmm. So you have a forging craftsman, and all he does is start with the raw material mm-hmm. of steel mm-hmm. and forges that knife and gets it to the right shape and gets it heat treated. And then his part is done. Mm-hmm. The blade itself then goes to a sharpener. Mm-hmm. And his only job, all he does is sharpen. He does not forge. He doesn't make handles. Oh. All he does is grind the steel, mm-hmm. and he sharpens the knife. Then the blade will go to sort of the, the master knife finisher Mm -hmm. who has arranged for the right kind of handle for that specific blade Mm -hmm. that's being made and he will then having ordered the handle from a handle maker shop so there's a shop that just makes handles Mm -hmm. they don't do anything else they don't sharpen they Mm -hmm. don't forge they just make knife handles Mm -hmm. and then the master knife smith puts it all together Mm -hmm. and puts the handle on the knife make sure it's straight make sure everything's right and does the final engraving so most Japanese knives will have some engraving Mm -hmm. of Japanese characters on them and that's usually the type of the knife the manufacturer Mm -hmm. um, information 
And once it's engraved, mm-hmm. it's considered finished. Right. And then it gets put in a box. And so, you know, in that process, when I sell someone a Kikuichi mm-hmm. knife that's made in this way, you know, I know that Mr. Oe, mm-hmm. whose house I've been to and, you know, who I've had many meals with, he's the last person to have touched that knife oh. before I put it in the customer's hand. Right. Huh. Amazing. So uh, I'm sure he's been working on knife making for his whole life. He has. I mean, his, his father was a master knife smith. He's a master um, knife smith. Um, the guys actually, I, people on people on people listening to the radio can't see it, but I actually wore a T-shirt today <laughs> that is from this group <laughs> of knife makers cool. who we work with, um, <laughs> who call themselves the Kokajikai, mm-hmm. um, and they're the young the young knife makers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and the people that I visited there. You know, the sharpener was almost 80, mm-hmm. the master sharpener, and he had two apprentices who were in their teenage, who were teenagers. Mm-hmm. Um, the handle makers, the youngest guy working in the handle making shop, I think mm-hmm. was 66, 67. Wow. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Mr. Oe is, you know, he's in his 50s. Mm-hmm. Um, and Mr. Anami, who's one of the forging craftsmen who I've worked with quite a bit and who was here, actually did a forging demonstration here mm-hmm. in Brooklyn last summer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's in he's in his late 40s, early 50s. Okay. But these guys are the young knife makers. Mm. And so there are not that many people, even though the sharpener did have a couple of apprentices, there are not that many people getting into this as a career. Mm. These guys all learned it from their fathers. Right. Um, and, and they have it. And, you know, we're talking about people who, you know, work in a very small space. Mm-hmm. They essentially have, you know, a two or three story building. The mm-hmm. first floor is usually their shop where mm-hmm. they're doing the forging and they live upstairs. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is their livelihood. It's their business. They work six days a week. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, still, and I, this is one of the things I find amazing about it, you know, it's passing through all these different hands. Everybody has to get paid for his section of this work. Mm-hmm. And these guys, you know, they're not, they're not paupers, but they're mm-hmm. not, you know, they're not living high, you know, right. they're not living the high life, but, you know, they're making, they're making a living and they have a, you know, mm-hmm. middle-class lifestyle. Right. We still are, you know, we're talking about knives that range in price mm-hmm. for sure, mm-hmm. but on the lower end that we're able to retail at the Brooklyn Kitchen in the two to three hundred dollar range, mm-hmm. which to me is really amazing right. that we're able to still get that product mm-hmm. at that price, mm-hmm. given what I know about how it's manufactured right. and that it's not coming out of a factory that's pumping out a thousand of them a day. Right. It's coming out of a factory where the forging craftsmen can make depending on the hardness of the steel and the quality of the knife they're making, Mm -hmm. you know, they can make between four and maybe 18 Mm -hmm. a day. Right. But somebody's like living their lives in medieval style and then what does they go making that amazing knives? Yeah. Right. And uh, well, you said it's harder, but I heard uh, the Sakai knives, uh, the average stainless steel knives uh, have uh, 56 GPA. It's a measurement of pressure at the gigapascals. And uh, Sakai is 62 GPA, which is a lot harder. Yeah. So that's the, the handmade value of what they're making. Yeah, absolutely. Right. right. So now, uh, what's the difference other than that, you know, the Sakai and harder and steel, what's the difference between Japanese knives and the Western knives? So, I mean, in, in a, there are lots now, there are lots of knives made in Japan now that are sort of based on a Western style. Mm-hmm. But the major difference is that traditionally speaking, Japanese knives are made to, they're one-sided. It's mm-hmm. a one-sided blade. So it's more similar to um, what we would know as like a razor blade that's flat on the back mm-hmm. or slightly concave on the back mm-hmm. and then has an angled side. Right. And the knives traditionally were only meant to be held in the right hand. Mm-hmm. You only use them right-handed. Yeah. Um, and so the, the, the chamfer went in such a way that you were holding the knife with your right hand. Mm-hmm. 
now in the last 25, 30 years, they've mm-hmm. started making left-handed knives, but right. they're very rare. You know, if you're born as a left-handed, you're corrected to be right-handed. Yeah, my grandfather was. Yeah, my grandfather my brother had his, too. Yeah, my <laughs> grandfather had his knuckles broken in Catholic yeah. school. <laughs> he was a Jewish kid, but he went to Catholic school, and they yeah. broke his knuckles when he was used his left hand. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, and uh, so so there's a there is a use difference. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, you ask about that. So so in Japan, the knives are one sided, and in the West, they're usually two sided, or the the angle is the same. So the mm-hmm. the chamfer comes in from both sides mm-hmm. um, evenly mm-hmm. uh, to a point on that knife, and the and the the way the knife is used is very different. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that if people who are listening imagine that a knife that we use in the West, you tend to hold it straight up and down, mm-hmm. and the idea is that that knife comes in at the same angle from each side because you're cutting straight down through right. whatever you're cutting. The way that a Japanese knife is often held, you're not actually cutting straight down. Mm. You're cutting at an angle. Um, mm. And so if you think about, you know, when you when you go to the sushi restaurant, mm-hmm. if you watch the chef's work, the other thing that they do is they actually put the blade towards their hand mm-hmm. in a way that we are taught not to do in the United, in, in the United States and in the West, the idea is you don't, I mean, obviously you don't want to cut your hand, but mm-hmm. we're taught to keep our hand away from mm-hmm. the knife as much as possible. Mm-hmm. And often you see chefs holding something down like meat mm-hmm. or sushi with their hand mm-hmm. and slicing actually towards their own fingers. Right. Um, obviously they're, the idea, and the idea being that if you, if you imagine holding down a piece of fish or a piece of meat with your left hand flat down onto the board mm-hmm. and you have a knife in your right hand, mm-hmm. that the way you are holding it actually is the flat side is up. Mm-hmm. And right. so the angled side is mm-hmm. sort of towards the board. That knife is naturally going to go towards the board mm-hmm. because the flat side is falling under your hand. Right. It's not going to go into your hand. Mm-hmm. So, and they pull, you know, pull to your side. Yes, you pull towards right. yourself right. Um, using a Japanese knife. Right. So uh, in the end, so the one-sided knife can enable you to cut slice thinly, most thinly. Yes, I think it requires a little bit more... Um, experience and mm-hmm. practice to mm-hmm. use it well to slice thinly um, mm-hmm. than a, than a double sided sort of more Western style knife. Uh-huh. Um, but yes, you can you can slice things incredibly thin with that knife. And and you know the the hand forge knives um, often are carbon steel instead of mm-hmm. stainless steel, which okay. is an older material, mm-hmm. has a finer grain structure than most stainless steel, except for the most modern alloys. Mm-hmm. And so that allows you to get a much finer edge as well. Mm-hmm. Right. And I also heard that it doesn't stick to the food. Once you slice it, because it's one-sided, it's yeah. slightly bent. Yep. Yeah, the, the way that the angle is um, on the front and then the backside having a slight concaveness to it mm-hmm. keeps food from sticking to the blade. Yeah. So uh, th- there are a couple of different kinds of knives, uh, Japanese knives, that, uh, but w- which one do you recommend uh, from your store for beginners who never use Japanese knives? So I would say, I mean, you know, in the... For most people, if mm-hmm. someone is, doesn't have a knife at all mm-hmm. and wants to buy a knife, I definitely would recommend um, a more Western-style knife, but but perhaps of Japanese manufacture. Mm-hmm. Um, something like a Gyuto, mm-hmm. which is essentially a Japanese-manufactured Western-style mm-hmm. chef's knife by shape. Right. Um, you know, possibly a Santoku, which is a which which means um, sort of three-use knife, mm-hmm. uh, Santoku. Mm-hmm. But but it's the the. The idea being that if what you are imagining a knife does, and you're mm-hmm. imagining the way you've seen people use knives your whole life, mm-hmm. if you were to just buy a Japanese single-sided blade, mm-hmm. it, 
you're not going to like it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think. Um, but if you train with it, mm-hmm. you know, you, you may be able to use it. And I, I would say probably something, um, I wouldn't recommend a deba, which mm-hmm. is a sort of much more triangular shaped mm-hmm. blade that's really for butchering, mm-hmm. um, often for cutting up yeah, fish. Yeah, it's pretty dangerous. <laughs> it, it's really dangerous and it's not, it's not very useful, I don't think, to the, to okay. the normal home cook. Right. Um, but something more, more of an all-purpose mm-hmm. um, knife. The santoku. The santoku right. style in that shape. And one-sided or two-sided. If you're really interested in, mm-hmm. in learning to use a one-sided blade, I think they're mm-hmm. great. Uh, but it definitely is a little bit different than you probably imagine using a knife. Yeah, that's great. All right. So, um, well, thank you for joining us today, Harry. And for listeners, uh, if you'd like to know more about Harry's store, please visit uh, thebooklinkkitchen.com. And if you have any questions, comments, please contact us at heritageradionetwork.org. And you can also reach me at akikokatayama.com. And Japan Eats is live at 3, a, uh, 3 p.m. on every Monday and always available at heritageradionetwork.org. See you next week. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us with questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.